Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Seven years ago, college wrestler Damian Hurd disappeared from a party in Gunnison, Colorado. Everyone has been drinking or whatever, the usual party scene. When, how, and why he left are questions I need your help to understand. Nobody's heard from him. No, it's just like he disappeared. From Cold Case Productions and Podcast One, Final Days on Earth, The Life and Death of Damien Hurd. I'm your host, Claire Sanima. Join me April 20th for the season premiere. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Sam Vecini of The Athletic, and naturally our conversation starts with the significance, or in certain cases, lack of significance, of the NCAA tournament this year. But then Sam and I get into a pretty interesting discussion about great players, what it takes to be the best player in a championship team at this point in time, the evolving role of centers in the context of Mobley. A lot of really interesting directions there. Apologies a little bit, there's some, some audio quality wonkiness from my end but should be okay enough to, for you to make it through. Conversation runs a little bit over an hour. I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful Friday afternoon here in sunny, warm Melbourne, Australia. Uh, despite the fact that we're in the middle of fall, the, uh, the weather deities above have given us a, a beautiful 20-degree day because we use Celsius over on this side of the world, and uh, I still have not adjusted to what that means, but it's warm. There are like 15 things you said in that soliloquy that broke my brain a little bit, and I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Um, but I obviously, you know, and, and that's as somebody who spent time dealing with Celsius when I would spend my summers in Canada. Anyway, um, something that I found really striking, and obviously, please correct me if I'm wrong, wild sure. NCAA tournament, but and, and certainly we'll talk about players who improved and and weaken their stock and all that. It feels to me from, you know, reading the tea leaves that I that I have that while other things moved, the top five seemed remarkably stable. Is that is that a correct interpretation of what March did and didn't do? Yeah. You know, like, I, I don't know that March. Yeah, I think that you hit it with didn't do um, the top five guys are the top five guys in this class. Like, there's just not really any way of getting around it. Um, you know, I've like already written their like draft guide profiles, so I'm pretty deep into the weeds on them at this point. Um, I, I just I, I don't really see any avenue, especially with the top four guys, where anyone's going to be able to break into that structure. And by the top four guys, I mean Cade Cunningham, Jalen Suggs, Evan Mobley, and Jalen Green. Um, I, I don't really have a problem with you ranking two through four in whatever way you want to. Uh, I think one is pretty set with Cade. I, I feel strongly about that and have felt strongly about that throughout the process. Uh, I think five, frankly, is pretty set with John Kaminga. Uh, I, I have more concerns about him than I think some other people do, to be honest. Like, I just did a really deep dive into his tape actually this week while writing his draft guide profile. And um, came away more concerned than what I thought I would be. But um, those one, two, three, four, five, it's going to be some group of the same five guys. Uh, I just think that every team is going to rank that two through four area quite differently. 
Yeah, and that could be for various reasons. It could be because you you value what the guys do or do not do differently, or it could be you know I the the general rule for me is I mean granted I'm I'm pretty firmly in the best prospect available, but if yeah. you see guys in the same tier, you see them in the same conversation, then fit or skill you know skill elements those can come more into play, and I think that presumably is a part of how that can really vary. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would also say that each of these three guys, Suggs, Mobley, and Green, each have some different weaknesses that each team will value quite differently and each evaluator is going to think of quite differently. Like Evan Mobley is very skinny and I don't think he's going to be like some 250 pound center, right? Um, He struggles a little bit on the defensive glass and in general just has a very high center of gravity plus is still working out the jump shot. If you think Evan Mobley is going to be like a pull up jump shooter, then you should take him number two. Yeah. If you have more concerns about him being a pull-up jump shooter and you think he's more of a um, high-level passing, elite-level defensive, uh, you know, athletic center, then you should probably take him at four. But where you fall on the skill development of each of these guys and where you think their skill development is going to go in the future is going to play the biggest role in where you kind of rank them. Uh, it's stuff that we, it's based off of the stuff that we haven't seen from them yet versus the stuff that we have seen from them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And with Mobley in particular, I mean, it's something going back to basically as far as you and I have had conversations for, for this podcast and on game theory and everything else is the center position is the most fraught, the most complicated because... If you're not, you know, if you're not first, you're last, kind of that, the the Ricky Bobby idea, because if you're not in that group of, let's call it five to six centers who are so good that you don't take them off the floor, then you can be, you can be useful. You can be a part of a good team, of course, but the replaceability and the marginal, the marginal cost of a downgrade is so fundamentally different than other positions. Well, I think it's really interesting, too, because this year kind of shifted the paradigm a little bit with bigs in regard to the way that teams are starting to run offense through them just a little bit more. Um, You know, for instance, uh, Denver obviously has run a lot more of its offense even in the than it has in the past regular seasons, at least through Nikola Jokic, and Nikola Jokic is going to win the MVP award this year. Uh, It feels like Philadelphia is running even more of its offense through Joel Embiid. Uh, Indiana is even running more of its offense, you know, prior to this, like, little back injury that Sabonis has. Um, They're running even more of their offense through Domana Sabonis, and it feels like more teams are running their offense through these perimeter, uh, through these bigs that can play both on the perimeter and uh, on the interior. And they're willing to do that a bit more often. So at the end of the day, what, what I'm looking for now from the center position is, is there a chance that you can be the kind of player that a team runs actions through? Uh, 
And that standard is exceptionally high because you have to have perimeter skills that are pretty damn close to being that of a wing at the end of the day. Um, if not better least than that, ter- honestly. At least in terms of like your dexterity with the ball. Like you might not, like for instance, like Domana Sabonis, like he's not shooting the ball like a wing and he is not necessarily, uh, you know, getting the ball in like on the wing and then running like a side ball screen action, driving and finishing at the rim. But what Demonis Sabonis can do is he can catch the ball at the top of the key. He's very dexterous with the ball, can make decisions at an exceptionally high level and diagnose what's happening within the play and go from there and you can run your offense through him. I think that that is maybe the most important thing that you need to be able to do. You need to be able to make these rapid decisions uh, in a way that most centers just can't do, right? Like, like Clint Capella, you know, is, is a good positive story of teaching a player uh, a specific read that he can make, right? Like Houston in the Harden era started short rolling him and specifically taught him, hey, there is a cross corner three point shooter that is probably going to be open most of the time if the guy tags you. So just look and hit that guy if he's there. But like Clint Capella can't do anything else other than that within the grand scheme of an offense as a passer. You need to be able to really read and diagnose the way that teams are playing you and the way that uh, just the way that the, the defense in help is operating, which is not always that easy. Yeah. And the, the threshold, as you were getting at, the threshold is incredibly high because if you aren't at that level, then teams are better off putting those responsibilities on someone else. And it takes a lot to bend your offense. I mean, I am a firm supporter of this idea and you could, you could throw, he's not a center, but like what the Knicks have done empowering Julius Randle and you could go with other, other players. And I'm thrilled with that development. I think that putting the, putting the ball in the hands of your, or point Zion, obviously. Yeah. And Julius Randle is just like, I mean, the fact that he's gone from a non-shooter to a 42% three-point shooter um, has totally transformed his game, which, you know, that's always been the case. We've always said that if Julius Randle gets the jump shot down, it's going to transform his game because of the way that he can power his way to the rim and always has been able to power his way to the rim and always has been as dexterous and capable of handling the ball, particularly with his left hand as he has been. So the fact that the, the leap came at 26 years old versus coming at 22 years old, maybe uh, that's the surprise of this, but you know, Randall, it's a case where the talent has always been there. If the jump shot would ever figure itself out, the physical tools and the ball skills and all that. Yeah. It was, I mean, going back, to when he was on the Lakers and of course when he was on the Pelicans like you could see some of those inclinations but it's can you get all the other stuff up to that level and what I find so interesting is that yes it is unambiguously a great thing for the NBA and you know if it gets into lower levels to a certain extent yeah sure by all means lower levels of putting the ball in the hands of your your best playmaker and that's decision making handling passing all those different things shooting in a lot of circumstances but the other challenge that stems from that is if you're the 40th best or 45th best or 50th best guy, irrespective of position like like size or any of that kind of stuff, it is a much smaller value add. And so you can well, still... For, forget 40th. Like, 
I think if you're like the 15th best at it as a big man in the NBA. Oh, no, I'm hard. talking about at any position. Like, oh, OK. If you're so if you're, you know, if, if you're the 40th best at any position and because remember now you're adding to the field, it's not just competing against point guards. There are threes, there are fives, there are fours that can take on some of those responsibilities. Yep. And so it it's you need to have somebody who can do that. But the the secondary and and there there are often but not always some spillover benefits. Like I, I think of Jalen Suggs from the limited amount I know about him as a good example. Of this is like even if you're not that guy, having some of those tools in your toolbox is still really valuable. But especially for a center, the benefits are or more muted. You know, like it, it, being able to make good decisions always helps. But if it's not going through you nearly as much because you're just not that level of player, it helps the team, but it doesn't transform the team. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's absolutely right. Like, I mean, even someone like Miles Turner, who has like the ability to shoot the ball, right, and can run like some dribble handoffs and things like you can't run things through him at the end of the day. Like Miles Turner is not a poorly skilled perimeter center. Right. You know He's what just I not mean? good enough and, at that specific thing. Right. And it's just the level is so high. <laughs> the level is so high uh, to be able to do that because, you know, someone like I'm trying to think um, of like a random like player that can do these things. I mean, like someone like TJ Warren is what, like outside of the top 10 small forwards in the league. And like you're better off running your offense through TJ Warren. Probably you're better off. Uh, running your offense right now through someone even like um, like even someone like Kobe White, I think, even though Kobe like struggles to make decisions and doesn't put the ball in the right place all the time. And his shot selection can be a little bit questionable. Um, you know, you might even be better off running your offense through like Garrett Temple than even someone like like Lowry Markinen at the end of the day, right? To just keep it with the Bulls, right? Because even though Lowry can really shoot and is a useful uh, spot-up weapon and um, you can run some mid-post action through him, you're probably better off running like a Garrett Temple-led set than you are where like Garrett can take advantage of his passing ability and his unselfishness and um, the occasional like ability to shoot, then you are running a set through Lowry marketing in the mid post because Lowry isn't overly long and it's probably just going to end in a contested like 12 footer. Yeah, if you do it's, that, it's and that's just not a great shot. It's harder for marketing to create an advantage that really produces something for his teammates in particular. Like, yeah, for himself too. But like, yeah, that there, there are a bunch of different ways of kind of bridging this problem. But one of them is what, and I, I think of Zion for this. I think he is instructive is what kind of an advantage can you create? So maybe it's, <laughs> yeah. maybe it's, you can, you, you, your first step is better. Like that's kind of some of the old point guard stuff, or you have a really good handle. So even if the guy's with you, you can shake him or you make really good passes, whether we're talking about speed or like vision or whatever we're talking about, like sure. there are different ways that you can, that you can create it. Or you can be like Zion where you're just bigger, stronger, faster than everybody. And that works out reasonably well too. But it is, it is a lot like, so you have to be able to do something. And it's a part of why, like, 
Like it, it, the RJ Barrett part of this, I think, is really interesting. Is that Barrett? He is becoming a successful NBA player in a way that is both to me like kind of surprising and unsurprising. Which is that I didn't believe he had the juice to be an on-ball guy, and that's part of why I was really low on him in the draft. And you know, he still has a lot of time. RJ Barrett's, you know, he's like what twenty twenty-one. Like he could he's still 20, get, yeah. he could still get there. But to his immense credit, what RJ has basically been doing is becoming valuable enough at everything else that he's still a viable, helpful, useful player. You know, his defense has improved. His rebounding was a strength even when he came into the league. His off his off ball shooting has improved dramatically. And you can do it that passing way out of pick and roll stuff like that. Yeah, as yeah, well. exactly. So like you he, and it isn't that being, you know, yes, every team needs that guy, that initiator that I, I sometimes am now using the term like an every down running back, which is funny because every down running backs are dying in the NFL. But it's the same idea of like, okay, you know, and it doesn't have to be as extreme as Luca in Dallas, but it can be. And it's, you have to kind of strike that of like, where, where can you get in where you can fit in? And it's a, it's a really interesting challenge to reconcile with somebody like, like Mobley. I haven't watched a ton of film on him yet, but you get into that because not everybody is Bam Adebayo. In fact, most guys aren't Bam Adebayo. Yeah. And I mean, the year yeah, is still trying to figure out how to maximize Bam. Like it, it takes time. Yeah, they are. And you know, in the case of Mobley, like there are a lot of those similar like Bam type of skills, whereas Miami kind of runs a lot of like, OK, let's dribble handoff. Either he'll give the ball to Duncan coming off a dribble handoff. Duncan will flatten out behind the DHO and then he'll take a shot or he'll come around, make a pass. Maybe he gets it back to Bam and Bam will drive like left hand baseline, um, you know, to get to the rim or something like that. Um, with Mobley, Mobley's a little bit better, like middle of the floor DHO. He can run some like side DHOs as well. But and then Bam can also do some stuff where he'll like deny the DHO, you know, switch course, drive to his left and finish on his own. Mobley, I think, is a little bit better at like diagnosing what's happening out there, um, but isn't quite as strong as Bam to where Bam can like bully his way to the basket. Uh, Mobley had like a few games this year where he went like field goal attemptless. He still got to the line, but like, you know, low number of field goal attempts because he wasn't strong enough to like kind of get past his guy. But there's also a case that once he gets to the NBA, his driving lanes will be extended out just a little bit because the geometry of the floor will be extended out just a little bit and, more. And the, sh- and the shooting is getting better too. And his shooting is getting better. I, I think he is going to shoot it at some point, maybe not like off the dribble and not like as a pull-up guy, like Anthony Davis has become or anything like that. But I think well, that he's going to shoot it. Just the surrounding talent shooting. Like that's something, I mean, right. I, I, I can't be, I'm not as privy to what USC was, but as you know, th- there's this weird kind of correlated factors with the NBA that as offense is becoming more important, you also create more, more openings because of that offensive offensive selection yeah no i think that that's absolutely right i will say like usc in general um did not take a ton of threes this year uh they did make it a reasonable attempt and they had guys like um tajidi drew pearson isaiah his brother got some respect out there isaiah white um here's the other one ethan anderson can shoot a little bit um, they, they had some guys around him that could shoot to a reasonable extent. Noah Bauman as well is another one. Um, so they did space it pretty well. But even then, the floor in college is still just so condensed. Oh, yeah. That it's hard for these bigger players to find driving lanes. Like you saw it even with Cade Cunningham this year where like – 
Cade averaged something like 20 points, six rebounds, three and a half assists a game. But when Cade would go to drive, Cade almost always had to stop and pop because these college officials, they love calling charges more than, you know, Worldwide Wob loves finding random synchronous moments on the court, right? Like, I mean, college officials are the bane of my existence in so many ways as an evaluator because they just absolutely throw out the most ridiculous calls that make the game less fun and they make it so that someone like Cade Cunningham is less useful on a basketball court. But I digress. Um, These driving lanes, though, end up being so condensed that that's why you see some of the bigger initiators – Uh, you know, end up taking more shots like from the floater range. They end up getting kind of cut off sometimes because they'll get triple teamed because these teams in college will run uh, zone or pack lines or anything like that just to kind of slow things down. So it it can be a tough eval sometimes, but what you need to do is you need to find the guys that like kind of have more creative handles or in the case of Mobley, I think his first step is actually really good for a big if he's going to be guarded by centers. And in part, his first step is really good because he bends and has really long legs. So his length extension and his ability to stretch out that first and second step particularly kind of allows him to get that little bit of separation that he needs to be able to get to the rim. So I think he's actually going to be okay as a driver as long as there isn't a help defender coming over and as a center it's oftentimes harder for those help defenders to get there because they just aren't as comfortable as like a weak side rotator coming over to the rim. That's really interesting. And there is a small concern for me, again, not having seen a ton of mobile yet, that if somebody is good with his kind of basic skill set, then can he take advantage of somebody who's smaller? Like if, if a team decides to put a four on him, this is, you know, Porzingis is a good example of this, or there are yeah. plenty, plenty of other ones. And now it's true that you need that if a team does that, they need to put their five somewhere else. And some of those could be a challenge. But I, I'm always a little like that's one of the real there are two challenges with kind of like thinner centers. And, you know, I'm a Nerlens Noel believer, numerous other guys. One of them is just the structure of your offensive game. And then the other one is we haven't seen that many of them on elite teams until very recently, but there is a collection of centers that they can have real hard times with when on the defensive end, where like, you know, the Jokic's, the Embiid's, where it's just that they're, if those guys overwhelm, I'm not saying Evan Mobley individually, but a, a Mobley type, that creates a problem. Now, there are ways to get around that. I think that you can, you can send some doubles, you can, you can do some creative stuff defensively, but they're challenges. I'm not saying they're insurmountable challenges, obviously, but it is something that I'm sure some teams will be thinking about, especially if Embiid and Jokic are, you know, Jokic, unfortunately, with the Jamal Murray injury, probably more of a regular season thing. And with Embiid, we don't know yet. It's still still too early. But the NBA is, is a copycat league to, to some extent. And I'm very interested to see if the big men were, I mean, Gobert in a different way. If they, if they yield success, do we see the copycat in a way that we haven't for the last 15 years because those teams haven't succeeded in the same way. I think it's I think it's possible that we see some copycat stuff, but I think the copycat stuff is more going to be like 
in the way that the, they get these guys the ball as opposed to like the way that they build their teams the per- so, around so guys. scheme rather than personnel. I think probably scheme rather than personnel and frankly like and just the way that like it's almost like organizational identity at a certain point, right? Like I'm sorry to Ben Simmons because Ben Simmons is like seriously I, I love Ben Simmons. People don't uh, I think the people who follow me and have heard me for years on this podcast will know that I love him, but like Philadelphia's identity now is wrapped in Joel Embiid, right? Um, Denver's identity is obviously wrapped in Nikola Jokic. Orlando's identity, for better or worse, over the last few years has been wrapped in Nikola Vucevic before they dealt him. Uh, I think that just the way that you run offense uh, and your overall team just becomes so wrapped up oftentimes in who your best player is and how you operate in getting them the ball that it becomes trickier to navigate like without that once you start doing it um you know like toronto was very wrapped up even in like chris bosh when chris bosh was there and then once chris bosh moved on Chris Bosch flourished in many ways, playing as like the secondary guy next to LeBron and Dwayne Wade because he could do so many different things. I think there's actually a lot of comparable um, skill sets between Evan Mobley and Chris Bosch. Mobley's just like a Mobley's just a little bit bigger and a little bit longer. And I think he's a, coming along in an era whereas when Chris Bosch was coming up, it was still we post our bigs, we give them the ball on the block and we have them finish the play. Mobley is coming along in an era where we run perimeter actions through our bigs and we run dribble handoffs and we want run ball screens into short roll actions. And we do all sorts of different stuff like that. We get a little bit more creative with it. I think that those two actually are somewhat similar though. And Chris Bosch is, you know, genuinely going to be a hall of famer. So I think that when you look at that, it's almost like, it, it, I, I really think that Evan Mobley is going to be an excellent, excellent player. But like, I don't know that Evan Mobley can be your number one guy, like without a doubt on an offense for a successful team, at least just because that standard is so exceptionally high when it comes to having offensive success uh, at this level. Kind of along those lines, but at a different position, how confident are you that Jalen Suggs and Jalen Green can be that guy? Different players. Um, I think Jalen Green is one of the most likely players I've ever evaluated to average like 20 points a game in the NBA. Um, He's probably going to do it. I I feel pretty confident that he's going to be at least a 20 point per game guy. The question with him is how does the vision and how does the passing ability develop? Because like there's a lot of Zach Levine there with Jalen Green. He's a little bit more powerful as an athlete than Zach Levine is. Um, And a little less lithe, right? A little bit more powerful. Yeah, a little bit less lithe. That's a good call. Um, You know, Zach, it seemed like he was floating in the air when he would like go up and try to finish. You know, Jalen Green is forceful. Um, he can power through guys, not necessarily in the same way that like Anthony Davis powers th- or not Anthony Davis, Anthony Edwards powers through guys, but very twitchy and very powerful um, in a somewhat similar way to Edwards, just without that, like, I look like an NFL running back power. Um, he looks more like an NFL safety, maybe if we're going to compare um, positions on the night of the first round of the NFL draft. Right. Um, 
in the case of Green, where the reason I think Green is a little bit better of a prospect than Anthony Edwards was coming in is I think Green's just a lot more polished as a shooter and a lot more polished in the ways that he can get to his shots um, than Anthony Edwards was last season. And I frankly think he's a little bit more developed as an off-ball defender as well. Um, he needs to lock in in the same way that Anthony Edwards need to lock in. But um, yeah, I, I really like Jalen Green quite a bit as like a scorer. But at the same token, like do we think Zach Levine can be like, Zach Levine is averaging 28 points a game, five rebounds, five assists. He's shooting 50, 42, 85. Do we think Zach Levine can be the number one option on an NBA team that is, you know, a top eight team in the league? It's a real challenge. You're going to need a lot of defensive identity. Well, I mean, for me, it's even more if you want to say this, the just the offense fan. It's like if your team right. is built around Zach Levine, can you be a top five, top 10 offense? And yeah, I, I frankly don't know that you can. Yeah, and not every team is going to have a top five, top ten offense, but it is a it is a challenge. And like with and by the way, like that's no criticism of Zach Levine. No, Zach Levine is exceptional. Zach and Levine he's, is, and he's grown so probably, much over the last couple of years. He's probably a top fifteen offensive player in the NBA at this point. Um, just with the way that he's able to get to his shot, the way that he's able to go around ball screens and just knock down shots from 28 feet. He's improved so much as a passer. Um, all, all of it is right there for Zach. It's just that the standard to being like a top eight player in the league uh, offensively or leading a top eight, top five offense in the league, it's just so high. It's so hard. And uh, in the case of Zach, like I think Zach's probably better off as like a second guy as opposed to the number one option. Uh, on a really, really good team, I mean, um, like a team that truly has a chance to compete. And I think a team like the conversation before used to be like, can a team with Zach Levine on it, like compete for a title? I think that answer is unequivocally. Yes, because I think that Zach is so good on offense and gives such a shit about whether or not his team is successful that, yes, he can absolutely be a part of a successful team. I just think it's as a number two, not as a number one. And that's OK. And his shot is good enough that a lot of that's a lot of that stuff can make sense and yeah maybe his sometimes he's a little bit too aggressive looking for his own looking for his own but i think that on a on a better team you get in that like i mean it's funny at, at another moment in the Jalen green conversation again i haven't watched film on him much yet other than a little bit of live ignite is somebody like bradley beal and like beal is in the weird yep. spot where he's better as a number two than a number one but it's also a reminder of how hard it is to find a number one good enough to push that guy to being a number two yeah bradley Beal's leading the NBA in scoring right now. It's not that someone like Bradley Beal can't in stretches be an effective number one. He can. It's more that to get your team wins, he's probably best as a number two, which is again, okay, Bradley Beal, probably a top 10 offensive player in the NBA at this point. Like who would you put ahead of him? You'd put LeBron, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Luca, um, Giannis, I would put ahead of him, even though uh, you know, you honestly, like you might be able to say he's a better offensive player than Giannis having thought about it uh, I, a little I, I bit more extensively. I probably would if we were just talking about that, but yeah, you like Jokic and Embiid and a couple other guys, but, um, yeah, Jokic and Embiid, like he's somewhere in the top 10 though. Probably he's at least in the vicinity. And I, and I think that with, but it, again, you talked about the rare, like the rarefied air. It's like, you know, to get into that conversation, it's, it's a small group and it makes sense when you really think about it because the, and, and not every team has to be as I mentioned before, as heliocentric as like the Mavs are with Luca, you can be if, if the player is good enough. But 
we're also having a conversation that's going that's aiming really high. You know, you could be a oh, totally. you could yeah. be a plenty good team with Bradley Beal as your best offensive player, and you know he's on one of those teams that is benefiting a lot from his presence, just like anybody would. But it gets into something that um, Nate and I. So Nate and I've been doing. Uh, we're we're working on this crystal ball thing for Dunked On, and so basically the the premise of the question is basically like, what is the league going to look like two years from now? And the most interesting dynamic for me that is going on is we have this amazing group of players and it's funny because lebron is in it even though he's like five years older than all the rest of them because he's a cyborg sent from the future to run basketball but this group of guys that we know because they have been are capable of being the best player in a championship team those guys are aging and they're you know, and, and we'll see how, you know, in the offensive era, aging shifts and numerous other things. But the most interesting question that is, it's it's because it's so abstract, that's kind of going around the league now is, who's next? Like, who is, yep. who is the, who are the players? Like, there are guys that we love, like, I mean, what Zion's doing, what, what Luca has done the last couple of years. And tantalizing young guys, whether we're talking about, you know, Kate Cunningham or some of the guys in the last couple of draft classes. But when we get into that real thin conversation of you could be the best player in a title team, a group that, you know, there are arguments about whether Jokic and Embiid deserve a place there. And I mean, we're, we're going to learn a lot more this, this playoffs about that. But I'll be honest, like, I, I think Jokic is 100% there. Like, I, I'm, just give- I'm not because the, the defensive stuff still worries me. Like, I think that offensively, no questions. I, I, I was blown away by how well it worked against everybody. But there is a threshold of basically like my my line has always been you have to be elite on one end and at least very good on the other in order to be a like a real high end championship team. And I wonder I, I and I mean, the, they did a lot last year to dispel my doubts. And I feel better about Jokic now than I genuinely expected to because he was great. And he was the, he was the best player in that in that Clipper series. And that was extremely important. But I'm still a little bit like, you know, you you think about the line between the series they had against the Lakers and like theoretically even like a full strength Miami team would have had against the Lakers. And like, I didn't see those as necessarily rigidly comparable. Yeah, I mean, it's real hard for me to get past just like how good Jokic has been in elimination games. And how good he's been uh, in leading like Denver onto into a playoff run that like I mean no nobody saw this right like no nobody nobody predicted this would be a thing for Denver where they made the conference finals well, and yeah. it was all through him I but mean here's, it's... but here's the thing that that I, I and I talked about this a little bit on a pod recently that I just have trouble like reconciling it it might just take two three years to, for me to get there either direction is but like so like he's gonna he's gonna be the guy who leads the team to the conference finals and then wins MVP because he's going to win MVP this year. I mean, like at, w- at what point do we not just like doubt it anymore? Cause I like, look, I I've questioned it before in the past. I haven't for like the last year and a half, but like shit, man, well, so I, I'm at the point with that dude where but, I'm just like, I'm, I'm not doubting anything. But here's the thing that gives, here's one of the things that gives me pause. 
the first, let's call it three games of that Jazz series. And yes, you could make an argument, and I would, that the Jazz are really well situated to make Jokic look bad when you think about the structure of their offense, the spread pick and roll, how aggressively they run it, everything else. The reason the Nuggets were nearly, and I would argue should have been, run out of that series is because their defense was horrendous. And getting Gary Harris back made a world of difference. They pulled, you know, Jokic and a bunch of the other guys pulled themselves up. They did a lot better. And and I mean, they, you know, th- that series was still bananas for a billion different reasons, but, and they were much better in the Clippers series and the Lakers series was different in a couple different ways. But like, there's a part of me that just can't shake that, that the Jazz should have won that series. And the reason, and you know, like they could have won it in four. Like, I mean, there, I, sure. that absolutely could happen. And so it's like, you don't, like everything that happened after that still counts. Everything after that is uh, incredible accomplishments from Jokic and Jamal Murray and a lot of their support players and Michael Malone who raised his stock in my eyes a lot in those playoffs as well. But there's that part, it's like, but he also could have been a big part of the reason they lost in a sweep. And so I'm not, it's not fair to like, and I'm not saying that as like, oh, well, it's obvious that he can't do it. It's just, there's, there's that little part in my brain that until, until like that series is further in the rearview mirror and it's been replaced by more good stuff, like beyond all the good stuff that's already in there, then I'll get there. And that's for me, one of the things that's most frustrating about Jamal's injury is I hope in it I hope that that time is going to come but we're probably thinking more about 22 than right now no I, I think so too I mean I, I've again I refuse to write off Nikola Jokic in any capacity because he is a cheat code and, but, and he's improved so much in so many different ways to this yeah point. and because he is such a big game player and always has been at this point in his career like He's going to do whatever it takes to get them to where they have to go. Now, having said that, uh, we're kind of having this conversation in the context of who is next after LeBron. I mean, Nikola Jokic lost to LeBron. He beat Kawhi and Paul George. Uh, like I, I feel like losing a series to LeBron and Anthony Davis, like, yeah, they weren't all that close in that Lakers series, but like it was still LeBron. And the whole point of this conversation is like, who is next after that? Yeah. And it's, po- and it's possible I, I that know. who's like, next? I, it's possible that the threshold goes down a little bit. I don't expect it to. I mean, maybe from LeBron because he's, you know, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I, I think, I think automatically it's going to because but, I mean, we're not Kevin, going Kevin to have Durant the second been... best player of all time. But we're yeah. not going to have the second best player of all time anymore, sure. right? And like Kevin Durant's been the best player in a finals on on a championship team recently. Steph Curry, right? Kawhi, obviously, and Kawhi's, Kawhi's Steph a is what. Steph's 33. I think right? he's 32 right now. Um, 32. I mean, Kevin Durant coming off an Achilles injury hasn't right. been able to like stay on the court for more than 25 games this year so far. Well, and the other thing to remember uh, is like there's this weird gap to some extent. I mean, Giannis, is, Giannis and AD are in, the, are in the middle of that gap of yeah. the young guys coming up, like the real young ones like Zion and Luca and all that. It might be another four years until they're close enough to their prime where they reach this level. But it, totally. might, it might take and, less than four years for those guys we just talked about, the luminaries, to be not that that standard anymore either. The, there might be this weird intermediate time where our standards have to shift and it might be temporary, which could really mess with everybody's heads. I'll, I'll be honest with you. If the Nets don't get healthy and the Lakers like aren't total and like LeBron isn't totally healthy, I think that standard is like this year. It could be. <laughs> 
like, and this is no disrespect to Milwaukee and Giannis, because I actually think Milwaukee is like the NBA contender that nobody seems to be talking about because nobody trusts them. But the Drew Holiday and PJ Tucker additions actually totally transform what their playoffs could look like. Um, like, I think there's a real chance that we could be having this conversation in what it would be for no three months. And we're talking about this as if Giannis is firmly, squarely within this conversation of, oh, this league is just going to be ruled by Giannis for the next like three years uh, after LeBron and Kevin Durant uh, can't really swing it anymore. Although I think that if Durant ever gets a full runway in terms of a season, he's still like very clearly MVP caliber player. I mean, he, even, so just LeBron, coming, even just coming back from his most recent injury. I mean, those games have been completely ridiculous. And I, th- I got into a conversation with Rob Mahoney on the pod. I think it was about a month ago along this idea. And what I, the way that I've been thinking about it, which is really kind of fun. And I think you'll get excited by this too, is that in certain ways, the teams that we would quote unquote trust the most, you know, in terms of personnel, let's say primarily, are the teams that have the most baggage. And I think that's part of what makes this year so wild is that the Clippers and the Bucks, in certain respects, if you're talking about like the ways the teams succeed and having, you know, now that the Bucks can switch more and some of these other, like they could, they can be more versatile offensively and defensively. And then the Clippers are the Clippers. In a normal circumstance, we would probably feel, we'd be feeling differently about those teams. And then you also, so you have those teams that we don't trust because we know, we know the history. Then you have this collection of obviously good teams that do not have a real playoff track record. And so you could talk about the extreme being the Suns, who haven't made it in a decade, or the Jazz, who just haven't really gotten that kind of traction. You know, they haven't been a serious title contender at all. And then you also have Philadelphia, where they, you know, they did have that series and where they lost to the eventual champions on a shot that bounced seven times or whatever on the rim. And and that should be acknowledged and the craziness of Embiid basically playing the entire series and them getting murdered in the minutes that he didn't play. But you have all of that. And then on top of that, you have the, the, the other kind of two teams that you could trust on talent and track record, respectively, are the Nets and the Lakers where health is a huge problem. And so it's it's basically there are all these teams that are worth paying attention to that have a real shot, but at the same time, like I can't talk myself into any of them. See, I think that my problem is I can talk myself into all of them, which is where I'm just like totally thrown this year. Um, like, I can almost still talk myself into Miami just because of the amount of trust I have in Jimmy Butler, like turning the corner at some point in the playoffs. Uh, And Miami, Miami, Miami's look like hot trash. Miami has Lucy like within a single season has Lucy, Lucy with the football me so many times that I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ready to open my heart again. Like I, cause you, cause you, you basically, it's like they have the same players, you know, they're they're They can, they like the cable, 
capabilities there. And when you consider that before the bubble, there were elements of it that were very positive for them, but they didn't look great. And you're like, oh my God, like last year, they didn't look good. They put it on for, you know, let's call it three weeks. And then they were unbelievable in the bubble. But the biggest thing, the biggest reason I'm not willing to go there with Miami is that Dragic looks older to me. And he was, well, as, as much as it was an ensemble and as great as Jimmy Butler and Bam and so many other guys were, Dragic was what put them to another level. And I think we saw that when he got hurt and Miami just couldn't, they just didn't have it anymore. And yeah, but you know what though? Like maybe he's sandbagging for the playoffs, right? Like uh, I I don't know that I'm ready for that, but yeah, I mean, the NBA is at the point now, like in this season of all seasons where, I mean, look, I think guys are trying, but I also think that there is a sense that the teams that are in the playoffs just want to get to the playoffs at this point. Well, and there's there's, like they, a, there's a bigger thing than that, um, which sometimes when you watch a team on the right slash wrong night, you see this plain as day, is that everyone is exhausted. Like, they're... Totally. They're, totally. They're, that, you know, like, some of it is like, oh, you know, they're like, the, the blowouts and stuff early in the season, like, yeah, that, that was its own thing. But now, like, sometimes you get these, like, really crazy results, and, and you remember, like, oh, this team has played three games in four nights, or they haven't been, you know, they've been all this crazy travel, or something else and it's like i'm so there are two two things that i kind of grapple with there so one is yes generally speaking the schedule getting back to quote unquote normal for the playoffs like that to me is going to help the teams that are more talented yep but the other part is how much tread is even left on a lot of these players tires because yep the ones who've been healthy and like that was the, the like nate's brought up the idea a couple people have about steph curry missing all of last year maybe and and for the player the other one that's going to be really interesting are the players who have missed a fair amount of this season due to injury but are a hundred percent or close to it for the playoffs so they actually yep. might have an advantage but the question is who are those guys like is is lebron going to be recovered enough is anthony davis going to be recovered enough all of the nets basically i mean especially harden with his hamstring thing and i'm yeah, probably the hardened one is what kills me for brooklyn because uh, hamstrings just are so bad they're notoriously for, tricky and the propensity for re-injury either immediately or a little while thereafter is just persistent like there's just it, well, it's it's so hard and here's the thing with harden too harden Harden's game is so based on like being able to shift gears, change, decelerate, accelerate off of the deceleration. Um, I really worry about how that looks because you drive and get so much power in terms of your acceleration from your hamstrings. Yep. That I really worry about how how that's going to look in the playoffs. But you know what? Like he doesn't need to do as much. He just needs to be out there as a threat, like shooting and driving, because he is so good at basketball that like and you play him next to Kyrie and next to Kevin Durant, like him being the third option, he can probably do that and be fine. And they're probably going to be okay. Um, but at the same token, like I kind of think that LeBron's just the guy this year. Like I, I'm not saying that LeBron, uh, wasn't hurt. LeBron, I think was definitely hurt. Uh, I think he's probably taking his time coming back though. <laughs> well, and like, maybe he learned his lesson from that groin issue a couple of years ago where he kind of came back to try to save their season and ended up not, it wasn't his fault, but like that ended up being a real challenge for them. And the Lakers have, I, I would say that they've weathered this storm better. And another way that 
they're coming out of this looking a lot better is that let's say they stay ahead of the Mavericks, which is not a guarantee, and any especially after the the games that they lost against Dallas last week. But if the Lakers end up in the four five against Denver, like unfortunately this just isn't the same Denver team without Jamal Murray. And and as excited as I was to see Aaron Gordon and all the other stuff that they're doing, they're just not the same. Like their their fastball is not there, and that sucks, and it's right. terrible for the league and everything else. But the path for the Lakers is if that's the case, it's just less daunting than we thought it would have been if, if we if we knew that they were going to be a bottom a bottom four seed, you know, a team that wasn't going to have home court presumably in any series. The thing that you would look for is can they face a team that's shorthanded? And that's why I think there's going to be a frantic push for the five is because the answer is yes. And it's also possible, depending on what happens in Phoenix and Utah and a few other things, that teams would rather be in the would rather be in the four or five for the second round, which is crazy. Right. I think they actually would. Uh, and that's no disrespect to Phoenix and uh, Utah, but if you told the Lakers coming into the season that they would have to play a Denver without Jamal Murray and either Utah or Phoenix to get to the conference finals, I mean, I I think that they would be doing backflips. And that's no disrespect to Utah. That's no disrespect to Phoenix, both of whom I think are excellent. But man, uh, that, that's I think that's what the Lakers want. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I, you know, you mentioned this frantic push that you think is coming for the five seed. I agree. I think Dallas would love to get the five. I think that Portland is still in the mix for the five and Portland would love to get to the five. But I mean, LeBron, it looks like is probably going to be back next week. Right. Sounding like, yeah. So I think that once that happens, (laughs) it's going to be like seven, eight games left in the season. LeBron's going to gear up. And uh, I I know, I think that I, I, I mean, I said earlier, I think that I can sell myself on a lot of teams and I can sell myself on Milwaukee. I can sell myself on Philadelphia, certainly on Brooklyn, who I think is the favorite in the East still. Um, you know, I can sell myself on Phoenix, who I really love to watch play. There ain't no team that I have to sell myself on less than the Lakers. Like <laughs> that, that team, you get back LeBron, you still have Anthony Davis changing the th- changing things defensively. I mean, this is uh, I think LeBron probably made the right decision. Uh, you know, may, maybe taking it back a little bit slower, getting back from everything that he needed to. On a different topic, something you you brought up the idea of like maybe we'll look back six months from now or even later than that and say like basically like we were we just we didn't know it was it was Giannis's world we just didn't know it yet. Right. There have been a few moments in the last few months where I've been thinking not right now it's going to be a couple of years from now that it, we might be having that same conversation with Zion just because. Like going back, you and I were so excited watching the film of him at Duke. We're just like, I when you've been watching the ball in his hands more, it's just like, what can you do? Like, I, in certain ways, you to can, defend him. Yeah. yeah, nothing. I mean, if if Stan Van Gundy's going to keep getting him the ball like on the right side of the floor and letting him get downhill, like going left, or they're going to keep running like dribble handoffs with like elite level shooters, nothing, absolutely nothing. Like it's, it, it's ridiculous. It, and and so, like, I, there have been points in this last few months where I'm just like, yeah, it's not going to be there right now. It's just like I can't when I can't figure out the counter. It's generally a, it bodes really well for where things go. That that came up for me with the Warriors at a couple different moments in time, including pre K but then definitely when they got Kevin Durant and the Lakers at their best moments last year, I think were, were, were interesting. I, 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 and as much as I believed in the Clippers last year, they never really had that just because of the nature of their players. Um, and 
I I think that partially because his handle is tighter and because his his offensive skill base makes more sense. Giannis is a miles better as a defender, and I mean Giannis, like I I, I think he's going to be in the MVP mix for you know probably another half decade because there are a few yep. players who take his offensive workload and are also even in the conversation for defensive player of the year. But I intensely value undeniability. Like I think that is you know it was going back to you could pick various teams that I kind of believed in a little earlier. And as much as I love Giannis, as much as I think that he has become a player far better than I anticipated and hoped, even though I had him real high on my board, we, we've seen offensively where that game can go. And that he doesn't, you know, and, and you could make the argument that Giannis shouldn't have to be that guy. And I think that's a totally fair thing to say. And maybe that's part of why they got Drew, though that's not necessarily what Drew Holiday does best. With Zion, he doesn't do it on both ends. But if he does it on one end, you can figure the other end out. Well, and I- I mean, look, you you go back to the Duke tape, like he was all over the place defensively. I, I don't think it's a circumstance where Zion's going to be like part, part of the Zion projection was that he had a chance to be like an all defense guy. I'm less sold that that's going to be the case. Well, yes, uh, yes, that point. is agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah. yeah, like I do think he's going to be an average defender at some point, though, like I, I don't really have a doubt but, about that. He's not that yet. Like, He's bad, Zion's, but... Zion's a four. Like he he doesn't have the long. He doesn't have long enough arms. He doesn't like. He's not. I I, I brought up recently. Nate and I were doing. Uh, I think it was we were doing the. We did the Pels game when they beat the stuffing out of the Clippers on uh, for league pass. And I brought up the point that there have been people who've tried to like say, well, you know, Draymond is shorter and he was able to do it. Zion Williamson isn't Draymond Green, and a lot of those are actually good things for Zion. Some of them are good for Draymond. He's unbelievably intelligent. He also has these crazy long arms. But at, at a point, you could say, oh, that's, that's big criticism or something. It's like, not necessarily, because it is easier to find a defensive anchor if Zion is a four than a five. You just ideally want to find somebody who can also space the four. And yeah, that unicorn is hard to find. I, I, I'm still frustrated they didn't trade for Miles Turner, anything else. But in some ways, I actually think it's easier to build a great team around Zion if he's a four. It is. It definitely is. Um the problem is that you have to find the five who can shoot. Like, it can't just be any five. Like, it has to be a five. Yeah, like, Zion Clint Capello would be a problem. Yeah, like, it. And there are fewer of those five shooters out there than what I think I expected at this point in the league. Like, given the way that players have been developed to start shooting the ball from, like, a younger age uh, for the last, like, eight years, realistically. Um, there are fewer of those like true fives who can shoot than what I thought there would be. Well, and especially um, if like, we're saying they have to defend at a reasonably high level. Like we're 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 drawing yeah. we're drawing pretty high bars here. Like it's it's Miles Turner. Um, I mean, like Serge Ibaka can yes. still shoot it. He's not quite as good defensively as what you want, but he's a like at least a fit in this regard. Um, the dream is like, that Porzingis can do it, but his his defensive like let's call it scheme versatility is limited because his feet yeah, are slow. I don't think Porzingis can defend anymore. I'm just gonna say it. Um, he's been better the than the of, beginning of the. He looked so bad in the early, when he kind of came back in the very beginning part. He's been a little better since, but not great. Yeah, like the idea of what James Wiseman can be maybe at some point like he'd be a fit um i, I mean, mean mobley conceptually maybe mobley's a conceptual fit uh you know Jokic, i guess theoretically is a conceptual fit but Jokic is god so like 
you know, not not someone you're going to be acquiring. Carl Towns is a conceptual fit. Like, is there a world where New Orleans could put together an enticing package for Carl Towns um, where it's almost like Brandon Ingram and other stuff for Carl Towns? Like down the road, if Minnesota thinks Carl Towns is about to leave, and like a billion Lakers picks, yeah. It, but like, also, I don't think that the difference in their contract length is all that big. Like, I don't think it's a two-year difference. I think it might be a one-year difference with Towns and Ingram, isn't it? I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I can't either. So, like, even that like is weird. Um, the the funniest one that I've been thinking about recently is if Toronto would let go Chris Boucher in the off season, I would be pretty interested in signing him if I was New Orleans. Well the other like yeah, the other opportunity is just throw a bunch of lower end resources and see what sticks. If you can't get the higher end guys like now that Miles Turner seems like he was more eminently available in the twenty twenty off season than he probably should have been. And it yeah. still seems like he might be available. But yeah, I, I think oh, if you if you can go get Miles Turner, go get Miles Turner. Like for the love of God, do that. Yeah, don't don't pass go just just go straight there. Uh, it's yeah, it, it's really interesting. Um, I want to, I want to kind of last big question I want to ask you is actually one that I was asked, but you know this better than I was. So I was in the Discord. Um, I do Discord with dunked on Total Access people, and somebody said for league wide entertainment purposes. So basically, like what would be best for in terms of what is best for the league? Where would be the best des- landing spot for Kate Cunningham? Oklahoma City. Interesting. I, I think undeniably Oklahoma City because. You pair him with Shea and with Poku, who, from a pure entertainment standpoint, like, I have no idea if Poku is going to be, I don't know what he's going to be yet. Like, you could tell me on Poku becoming like a top 10 player in the league at this point, because nightly he just has four or five plays where guys who are his size just don't even think of doing them. He, right? he is the hardest young player to figure out that I think I've ever dealt with. Yeah, I think he's going to be really good. Uh, I'm I'm not certain of it i mean uh, how could you be <laughs> yeah i would be like, freaked uh, out if somebody were certain about poku at this point i'm not certain but i i think he's gonna be good like i, I am i am further up the poku ladder than where i think the consensus is probably in terms of like the maybe this works maybe it doesn't work uh continuum right like i i think i'm higher up the certainty ladder than what most people are knowing that it's not um not guaranteed right so i think if you pair those two or those three you get basely and dort there still well they also have a bunch of other like if they could get kate cunningham that they have max space they could a bunch of different things they could do to add those extra spots there's that and they have a ton of picks coming and if they were to get the houston pick they could end up with like another high end lottery pick. Like if they end up at like six or seven or something, or, you know, say Houston drops to the third overall slot instead of the first overall slot where they are, um, that could turn very fun very quickly. And I think could turn very competitive very quickly. Uh, not not just even in terms of like, oh yeah, this team's a fun young team to watch. Like we're waiting for them to turn the corner. You put Cade with Shea and Dort and maybe a third year leap from Baisley and then just kind of let Poku figure out whatever the fuck Poku's going to be. Um, that team could turn like competitive, I think, by 2023 if it really went right. Totally. Like that, that, is, that is a dangerous team, I think, if they get Cade. Totally reasonable. My answer was New Orleans. And the reason New Orleans being- 
would be very fun. Because I think that having a second star, because Ingram, talented player, I just don't think of him as that guy. Having a second star with Zion would be fun. Like, it would make me the level of confident that I am not currently about any of the, like, teams of young stars. And that would be so exciting. Like... Well, and here's the other thing about that one too. That that's honestly probably the right answer, as opposed to like my answer being more what I would like to see. Right? Um, then you could re-sign Lonzo, who is actually best as like a off-ball half-court point guard that can really run the play like in the full court, right? And then you could figure out whatever you want to do at center. Um, hopefully, go out and get a big. But then you'd be basically six six to six eight through the one through four, all of whom theoretically can defend um brandon ingram and zion obviously have not been good there so far i still have some hope given that they're not 24 yet but like you know maybe maybe that's misguided hope but theoretically that should be a very good defensive team that has like three star offensive players yay i'm happy i'm happy you ended up agreeing with me i think you're right i like honestly your answer is the right answer if we're gonna be real about it you know what i mean um your answer is the right answer uh i also think toronto would be fun just because well toronto, toronto needs could, that guy like toronto like turn that so pretty quick toronto yeah. is running into very like shockingly quickly they're running into the problem that like it is a different version of the one that i would say orlando was in recently but it's the idea that everyone makes sense but you need the guy at the top and right. so like somebody who knocks everybody to the right spot in the pecking order and it is so hard hard to find that player like that is yeah. you know free agency is a brutal road trading like the, the i i hope that raptors fans appreciate how special the Kawhi trade was especially when you consider what they gave up and what they didn't have to give up in that deal yep that's extremely rare like and so for the raptors yeah the timing might be a little bit weird because siakam and van vliet are are kind of they're a teensy bit older than than you might think they're they're, they're you know more late 20s than early 20s but yep if Cade is good quickly, uh, then then like basically the team makes more sense. And I mean, for the Raptors, there's an argument that if you don't get that player in the next year or so, you might be better off just breaking it up. Unless ownership is cool, being yeah. that like pretty good but no real title equity team, which which yeah. totally fine if that's what you're good with. Like absolutely, I'm never. I'm I'm never going to criticize a, a, a franchise for wanting that, but it might not be what they want. Um, the other team that gets really interesting, if that was to happen, is San Antonio because they just have this weird group of young players. Yeah, almost exactly the same thing. We're like slotting everybody begging, down. Yep, for a top guy. I mean, um, I, I mean the other one that would be like, I mean, this is I mean what they intended with the Wiseman thing would be the Warriors. Yeah, I thought about them too. Like, uh, I, that, I just assume that they can't they can't get lucky like that. No, can't let that, that, seem, that seems unreasonable. Now maybe they could get the Wolves pick, and that ends up being like a like somebody with a little bit more superstar upside, like like. Minga or, or Jalen Green or somebody like that. But yeah, but Cade, no, that that seems that seems a little bit ridiculous. I mean, here's here's the funny way to make that work. Say that the pick comes in at four, the Minnesota pick and to four person draft. Is there a chance that the team at number one sees Cade is being closer to the rest of the top four? And would be like, okay, we will take Wiseman in four for number one or something. Dumb and like potentially that. maybe the Warriors' own pick or and or the Warriors' own pick, you know, like that because that could be pretty decent. Yeah, it's the, I mean, it's the Danny Ainge looks like a genius because that's the bet he made on Markel Fultz. And I mean, granted, they're 
complicated circumstances that are not entirely to his credit, but it looks brilliant because Jason Tatum, like Jason Tatum is better now, like maybe not better than I hoped Marco Fultz would be, but better now than a reasonable outcome for Marco Fultz had he had everything gone normally. Yeah, totally. That's a hundred percent right. Um, yeah, Jason, Jason got real good real quick. And I even love Jason. I had Jason at number two. I thought the Lakers should have taken him, but yeah, nonetheless. Well, you and I could talk for another hour. No, no hesitation, no questions asked, but, um, I will thank you for your time and always a pleasure. Yep. Thanks, Danny. Anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, and you can follow him, if you don't already, on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on, and I really enjoyed having a kind of a different conversation with him. We we weren't exactly sure which direction we were going to go after the very beginning, and I'm really thrilled with where it went, so that was a lot of fun. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can sub- download every episode, subscribe in the podcast wherever you're choosing, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really wherever you want to go. Or you can help other people find the show. That can be word of mouth, or that can be leaving a rating, leaving a review again in the podcast wherever you're choosing. Any of those things do really help. You can also check out my other work. Nate Duncan and I are still doing the NBA cast for another two weeks. We know there are only two more Mondays of the regular season, so we will be doing the live show for that. And then we will be transitioning to our original list call it live show where we do games and you have to kind of stream up with us but i love the league pass version i think that it's so fun that we get to call it and you can watch the game no worries about syncing or anything like that so you can check that out every monday you know so we have two more mondays left and then of course dunked on usually it's a 15 and 60 as the public episode every sunday evening slash monday morning depending on when you listen and then dunked on prime for the rest of the week a lot of interesting topics recently including best young cores we do gamer podcasts on what happened that night lots of fun stuff there you can check that out if you have any feedback on this show or honestly anything I do, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I'll get back to you if I can. I'm admittedly not as great about that, but I read everything as it comes in. So I really do appreciate all of that. Take it to heart and it helps make the show better. So that's why I ask you to do it. But that is enough for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.